might be invited to turn back in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5. We're coming to verse 23 for the final time for, for now at least. And to the final part of verse 23. I said last Lord's Day when we came through the word temperance and looked at that fruit of the Spirit, that aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, we would come to this little phrase at the end of verse 23, against such there is no law. So Paul has outlined in verses 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and then he concludes by saying, against such there is no law. And it's that little phrase, against such there is no law, that I want to draw attention to this morning. So with our Bibles open there, let's seek the Lord together in a further word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for today. We bless Thee for Thy goodness that finds us in Thy house, for ordering events in our lives, for the health and strength that we have, for traveling mercies to be here. We thank Thee for the fellowship we have with Thy people. We thank, Lord, of the hymns and the paraphrase that we've been singing, Thy word that we've read. We bless Thee, Lord, that we are now before Thee with Thy word open before us. We pray for thy spirit to come and apply the word to our hearts. Give us understanding, dear Father, of this little phrase. Help us to understand the significance of it for our own lives. And Lord, we pray that every child of thine, we would bring forth more and more and more of the fruit of this spirit in our lives, that we would bring glory to thy name, we would be able to testify to the lost around us. And we would enjoy the blessings of this spiritual fruit in our own souls. So Lord, to that end, I pray that will fill me with thy spirit. Give help in the preaching, give help in the hearing, and in the application of thy word. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. When Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians, he wasted no time in addressing a very grave situation that had arisen among them. This letter was not written to one congregation, but to a number of congregations that had been formed under his ministry. Paul, therefore, had a vested interest in these people. He loved them in the Lord, and he wanted the very best for them. But by the time he wrote this letter, he was greatly troubled about the direction some of them were taking. Paul was very well aware that these Christians were being influenced by false teachers from Jerusalem. These false teachers, known as Judaizers, tried to convince the Galatian Christians, who were Gentiles, that they needed to submit to circumcision and to the rules and rituals of the Jewish law. They came in amongst these believers and they argued, and their argument was very clear, in order to be accepted by God, you must be circumcised and follow Judaism. It wasn't a new heresy, for the Lord Jesus Christ had to deal with the same error during his earthly ministry. There were times in his day, and men like the Pharisees and Sadducees who claimed that salvation was not by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But acceptance with God involved a strict observance of hundreds of laws. Christ exposed that lie, and he explained the gospel in simple and in very compelling terms. 
Now, some years later, as Paul continues his ministry, the same old heresy has arisen again, and Paul had to fight against it. And so when he writes this letter to the Galatian Christians, he wastes no time in challenging that foolish and sinful way of thinking. In Paul's other letters, you'll discover that he begins by greeting the believers. He sometimes notes his thanks to God for their fellowship in the past. He frequently reminds them that he's praying for them, and sometimes he goes on to explain the various prayer requests that he brings on their behalf. There's none of that here in Galatians chapter 1. Rather, Paul jumps right in to say in verses 6 and 7, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ onto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. What Paul means by that is that there were some who had come in among these believers, and these Christians were now being entangled in another gospel, a false gospel, a gospel that depended upon works and the law and ceremonies and rites and rituals, and they were in danger of being swallowed up with that and going back from following Christ. The key issue here was a very simple one. Was salvation by free grace or was salvation by works? And Paul was very clear, dogmatically clear. It is only ever by grace and never under any circumstance is salvation by works. And so he goes on to say in verse 8 and verse 9 of chapter 1, But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. So Paul is making it very clear that he has no time for a salvation that was not all of God. And he had no time for those who sought to bind Christians into a way of thinking that promoted works above grace. Paul's exposition or his explanation of the gospel continues right throughout the six chapters of this letter. And in chapter 5, he speaks of Christians as those who have been made free by Christ. They have liberty. You see that in chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. So he speaks of Christians as having liberty. Liberty in Christ to walk in the Spirit. Liberty in Christ to enjoy the fullness of his grace. And he goes on to explain that the Christians walk, the Christians' manner of life, the Christians' testimony is in stark contrast to those who have never been saved or those who have never been set free by Christ. In chapter 5, he explains that the unsaved live according to the flesh. That is, they are controlled by the lusts of the flesh. They have never been changed, and therefore they go on in the paths of sin. But the Christian is different. The Christian person walks in the Spirit. The Christian person is led by the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwells within that person, and as a result of the indwelling Spirit of Christ, That Christian brings forth the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. Christ lives in them, and because he lives in them, they will be marked with Christian virtues and will grow more and more to be like the Savior. 
It's more than interesting that Paul never says that the fruit of the Spirit is speaking in tongues. He never says the fruit of the Spirit is healing the sick or receiving prophecies. That's a very common idea today within the charismatic movement. It attracts a large following of people, but there's not a word of that in the Bible. This is not a chapter or a passage that's dealing with the gifts of the Spirit, but this is dealing with the fruit of the Spirit. And those gifts, of course, were for a particular time in a particular set of circumstances in Acts and uh, those earlier chapters of the book of Acts. The fruit of the Spirit is described here in verses 22 and 23 as love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. In a word, it's really Christ-likeness. The fruit of the Spirit is Christ-likeness. And only salvation by grace can lead to this. That's the point of verses 22 and 23. Because we have the indwelling Spirit of Christ, he produces this fruit in our lives. And because... It is Christ living in us. This fruit, therefore, is Christ-likeness. The gospel of Christ is not a bondage. The gospel of Christ is a blessing. And the fruit of the Spirit will be evident. And as the end of verse 23 states, against such there is no law. We have read that little statement. I suspect dozens of times over the past nine or ten weeks. It has come up every time we have read verses 22 and 23. Against such there is no law. What does it mean? Is Paul saying that the law doesn't matter in the life of the Christian? Is he saying that the law has nothing to say to us as followers of Christ? Is he saying that the Spirit is against the law or the law is against the spirit? What does he mean when he says against such there is no law? And what does this have to do with us in the 21st century? What does this little phrase have to do with us sitting here in this service this morning? And as we go out through the week that lies ahead of us in God's will, what does this mean? Well, these last six words in verse 23 are just as important as the previous words in these two verses. And so it's important, I think, for us to take a little time this morning just to, as we bring this series of messages on the fruit of the Spirit to a conclusion, to look at this phrase, against such there is no law. I want to do that by using three words. First of all, this little phrase speaks of approval. It speaks of approval. The Galatian believers, remember, are facing a very dangerous, very damaging heresy. The Judaizers are teaching that full acceptance with God depends upon observance of certain laws. They're arguing that these Gentiles have got to be circumcised. They have to follow Old Testament dietary laws. They have to adhere to various rituals and worship. They have to become almost as Jews in order to be accepted by God. These men are wrapping the whole thing up in their laws. But Paul counters that by saying that those who have the Spirit of Christ, those who walk in the Spirit and are led by the Spirit, will show forth the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, and there is no law against that. In other words, this is perfectly in keeping with the mind of God. God has never spoken against this. 
He has never moved to restrain it. This fruit of the Spirit in the lives of his people. And he has never spoken against it. He has never moved to restrain it. Because this is according to the gospel. Charles Spurgeon said, Good men make no law against these things. He's talking here about the fruit of the Spirit. He says, Good men make no law against these things, nor does God. For he approves of them. The law of God does not condemn these things. Does not condemn love or joy or peace or meekness or temperance. In fact, it's the exact opposite. These things are in line with the law of God. They are in accordance with the law of God. And therefore, there's no law against them. God approves of the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of his people. It it can't be otherwise. There's gospel logic here. Since it is the Spirit of God who produces these things, and the Spirit of God never acts against the law of God, and the law of God is never against the Spirit of God, these things have divine approval. They are approved by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You think of Christ for a moment. All throughout his earthly ministry, Christ exemplified these virtues in their fullness. He lacked none of them. He was full of the Spirit, and the fullness of the fruit of the Spirit was evident in his life. If you want to do a a study of the the life of Jesus Christ, you could pick up very well these words in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and think through the love of Christ the joy that Christ had, the peace that Christ had, the long-suffering that Christ showed, the gentleness, the goodness, the faith, the meekness, the temperance. Did he not exhibit these characteristics in every area of his life? Was he not perfect in all of these things? Yes, he was. This is why the Father then says at his baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was a statement of approval. And the Father approves of the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of his people. He has issued no law against it because he approves of it. What does that teach us? What does God's approval of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, what does it teach? It teaches surely that the fruit of the Spirit is good. It's good. The works of the flesh that Paul outlines here in verses 19 and 20 are anything but good. There are laws against those things, the laws against every one of them. There's nothing virtuous, there's nothing godly, there's nothing holy about adultery or fornication or uncleanness or lasciviousness or anything else that's mentioned in that section of the chapter. Those things all have the stamp of hell upon them. They are against God. They are against godliness. And God's law prohibits them. God's law forbids them. Those works of the flesh need to be restrained. And you can read through the Ten Commandments, and they address these very things. God is against them. And his perfect law testifies against them too. But there's no law against the fruit of the Spirit. No law against love or joy or peace or long-suffering. 
There's nothing questionable, nothing dubious, nothing controversial about those. Therefore, there's no law against them. They are good things to have in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit, believer, is good. It is good for us as the Spirit works within our hearts. It is good for us to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Let's not shy away from these things. The fact that there is no law against them proves that they are good. It also proves that this is God's will, that we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. God does not forbid these things. In fact, he by his Spirit produces them in the lives of his people. Therefore, it is his will. It is his will that these virtues are seen in us. I'm sometimes asked the question, how can I know the will of God for my life? What does God expect of us as Christians? How can I be sure of God's will? What is God's will for us as we live here in this world? And very often, and I understand this, very often that question is asked regarding the specifics of God's will, regarding service or decisions in life or Christian work or relationships, and people come and ask, how can I know God's will for my life in these areas of my life? In a very real sense, these words in Galatians 5, and 23, they reveal God's will for all of his people in every circumstance of our lives. This, this is God's will for us, that we bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. Because he has no law against it. There is nothing to restrain us. There is nothing to forbid this. There is nothing to prohibit this. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul writing to the Christians in Thessalonica, he said, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you would grow more holy. And what is sanctification? What is holiness? Very simply, it is becoming more like Christ. It is showing forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And Paul writes to those Thessalonian Christians and he said, This is the will of God, even your sanctification. There is no law against this. It is good for us. It is God's will for us. This little phrase also at the end of verse 23, teaches us that the fruit of the Spirit in the life of a Christian brings glory to God. God is well pleased when these things are evident in our Christian experience. You think of this. The Spirit never acts contrary to the glory of God. There's no need, therefore, to have a law against these things because they honor and glorify our Father in heaven. The works of the flesh don't do that. And a great contrast in this chapter, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, the striving of the flesh against the Spirit, the works of the flesh don't glorify God, but the fruit of the Spirit does. What the Spirit produces in the life of a Christian results in that Christian becoming more like Christ. And that Spirit-produced Christ-likeness is always going to bring glory to God. 
And therefore, there's no need to have a law against it because the Father approves of it. The world looks at these nine words in verse 22, 23. It looks at these nine characteristics, these nine virtues, and it thinks they're really unimportant. Instead of love, the world shows hatred, doesn't it? Instead of joy, the world shows bitterness. Instead of long-suffering or patience, the world shows restlessness. Instead of gentleness, it shows rashness. Instead of goodness, it shows anger and harshness. Instead of meekness, it shows pride. Instead of temperance or self-control, it shows ill-discipline and recklessness. And the world doesn't really approve of these things. In fact, the world approves of selfishness and sinfulness. That's what the world approves. That's what the world puts a stamp upon. It doesn't understand. The world doesn't understand the Christian who lives this way or the Christian who prays to live more this way. The world doesn't understand that. Because the world doesn't approve of these things. But God does. And so verse 23 concludes with this little statement, against such there is no law. It's a statement of approval. This is what God would have seen in our lives. Dear believer, it's better for us to live and desiring that which God approves than desiring that which God forbids. Against such there is no law. Approval. But secondly, this little phrase makes me think of aspiration. Aspiration or ambition or desire. If there's no law against these things, then it stands to reason that every Christian should aspire after them. Think through that. If there's no law against these things, then it stands that every Christian should aspire after them. In the middle of my studies on these two verses as I brought them to you week by week, I began to ask myself the question, why are we in this study at this particular time? Why has God put this upon my heart to bring to you in these months over the summer? Why, why, why should we even consider Galatians 5, 22 and 23? Why give any thought to the fruit of the Spirit. What, what am I to learn from this? Never mind what I trust you will learn from this. What am I to learn from this? And what is the purpose of this in my own life? And I trust in your life as well. And the more I thought upon that question and asked that question to myself, I came to the conclusion, this is what we need. This is what I want more and more of in my life. I want to be more like Christ. I want to know the Spirit working more and more in my heart and doing what the Spirit does and producing what the Spirit produces. And I want that for all of us as God's people. We need these things more and more. And I began to think of the Apostle Paul. What was Paul's great desire in life? What was the burning burden of his soul? Well, he, he writes it for us. We're not left to speculate because in Philippians chapter 3, maybe just turn there for a moment. Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing to these Christians. He's writing from prison. 
He's writing to encourage them, and he wants to let them know what's on his heart, what's in his mind in regard to his Christian life. And he talks in the earlier part of chapter 3 about things that he would have boasted in, the works of the flesh, the circumcision, the Judaism, his ritual, his self-righteousness, his background, his religion. And then he says in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. You want Paul's personal testimony about what really filled his heart by way of desire, by way of spiritual burden, and here you have it in these few verses. This is his ambition. This is his aspiration in the Christian life. He wanted to know Christ. And he wanted to know Christ better. And he wanted to be more like Christ. That I may know him. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. And such was the burden of his heart. He says, I count all things but loss that I may know him. Is that what we aspire after this morning? To know Christ better. Not just to know about him, but to know him. And to be like him. Because that's what the fruit of the Spirit is all about. And believer, there is no law against this. Therefore, we should long after it more and more. It's it's good sometimes for us to ask ourselves the question, just what are we living for? It's one thing to say that Christ is present in our lives. It's one thing to say that Christ is prominent in our lives. It's something else to say that Christ is preeminent in our lives. This should be the greatest ambition that we have. This should be the greatest aspiration that we should have. We should be living and longing and seeking after more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Because against such there is no law. Follow me here. This this aspiration will show that we have life from Christ, or life in Christ. This spiritual fruit is living fruit. And it's only seen in those who are in union with Christ. I referenced a few weeks ago the difference between a tree that naturally bears forth fruit and a Christmas tree. On a Christmas tree, you add and you add and you add and you attach and you attach and you attach ornaments to it. And then when Christmas is over, you take them all off and you put them all away again. And then next year you bring them out and you put it all back on again. And it's all lifeless, isn't it? But the fruit in a tree is different. It's living fruit. That fruit grows because there's life in the tree. It's drawing 
the nutrients from the soil and there's life in the branches and the life is extended out into the fruit and therefore it's living fruit. And when we bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, it is proving we have life in Christ. These things are not stuck onto our lives. They appear because Christ lives in us. The Spirit produces this fruit because the life that the Christian lives is Christ living in that Christian. And therefore, the presence of this supernatural fruit is a testimony that we belong to Christ and we have life in him. Those who are dead in their sins do not bear this fruit. This is supernatural. This has nothing to do with a person's personality or a person's disposition. Those who are dead in their sins do not bear forth this fruit. It's impossible. But where you see a Christian full of joy and love and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance, what you're seeing is a Christian who is growing in grace and in the knowledge of Christ, and you're seeing Christ in that Christian. When Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 were arrested and brought before the Jewish council, and the men are listening to them as they defend what they've been doing in chapter 3, we're told that the men took knowledge of Peter and John that they had been with Jesus. That's a remarkable little phrase. They took knowledge of them that they had been with Christ. There was something of Christ in their lives. How they answered, how they carried themselves, how they responded, how they dealt with and reacted to all that was taking place around them. There was something about them that identified them with Christ. What was that? They were in union with Christ. And therefore the spiritual fruit that we're thinking of here in these two verses was shining forth in their lives and it identified those men as having life from Christ. What a testimony that is. This is why we should aspire after this more and more. Because it proves we have life from Christ. It proves we have liberty in Christ. The subject of Galatians 5 really is the subject of life in the liberty of the Spirit. Contrasted with life in the bondage of the law and of the flesh. Look at verse 1. Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What does that mean? What does Christian liberty mean? Some people think it means that they're free to do what they want. You're free to cast away the law of God. You're under grace. You're not under law anymore. Therefore, you don't have to worry about the law of God. And you're free to do as you please. And therefore, what you find is that some people live their lives professing Christianity with no regard for the law of God. That's not what Christian liberty is. Christian liberty is where the Christian is free to live unto Christ in holiness and righteousness, free from the bondage of sin, free to obey the law of God, for the law of God is not the enemy of life in the spirit. That Christian is free to honor God and please him. He's free to serve God in holiness and righteousness all the days of his life. That's what Christian liberty is. The Christian has liberty to show forth the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And against such there is no law. Christian liberty does not mean 
that we can throw away the law of God, or that we can do away with obeying the law of God, or that we can live our lives without any reference to the law of God. That's the heresy of antinomianism. That's not what this passage is teaching. We are free to live unto Christ and for his glory. We're not under the law as a means of justification. You can never be saved by keeping the law. But we are under the law as a rule of life. And the Christian is free. The Christian has liberty in Christ to obey the law for God's glory. The fruit of the Spirit is not the enemy of the law. And the law is not the enemy of the fruit of the Spirit. Therefore, we should aspire to know more of this. William Perkins, who is often described as the father of Puritanism, he said, spiritual men freely obey God as if there were no law. They are a voluntary and free people serving God without restraint. But you know, we ought to enjoy the liberty we have in Christ. Not bound up with the law as a means of trying to find favor with God and acceptance with God. We have that already in Christ. And because we are accepted by the Father in Christ, by his grace, we are free then to keep the law of God for his glory. That's true Christian liberty. And bringing forth the fruit of the Spirit reveals that, it proves that. It proves the life we have in Christ, the liberty we have from Christ, it proves the love we have for Christ. The love we have for Christ. Every Christian. And I include the young people there, the young believers. Every Christian should aspire after this spiritual fruit because it reveals something of Christ in us. And it reveals to an accusing world, a sinful world, that Christ means something to us, that we love him. We're not ashamed of him. We testify for Christ by the words of our lips, but also by our lives. And therefore, the more we bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, and this is seen in our lives, it reveals that Christ means something to us. We love him because he first loved us. These are things that we should aspire after. These are things we should pray for. We should be praying for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And that, if we begin to pray that more and more, we will then begin to make use of the means of grace more and more. The Bible reading, the regular prayer times, the public preaching of God's word, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We would refrain from sin. We would resist temptation. We would look to the Lord who is the author and finisher of our faith. This is what we ought to have ambitions for. That we would be marked with love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. And as I stressed over the last number of weeks, it's not that we pick out one of these and say, well, I'll be more meek, but it doesn't matter about being more patient. Or I'll be more joyful, but it doesn't matter about being more loving. Or I'll be more gentle, but it doesn't matter about faith or unbelief. No, we don't divide up these nine aspects of the fruit of the Spirit. It is singular. 
the fruit of the Spirit with nine parts. And it ought to be our prayer that the whole nine parts, all the nine parts, the whole fruit of the Spirit would be cultivated more and more in our lives. And not just for one category of believer, but for every believer. This is for me. But this is also for you, believer. That we would aspire after this more and more in our Christian lives. So there's the issue of approval. There's the issue of aspiration. And then this little phrase, against such there is no law, suggests the thought of abundance. Abundance. If there's no law against this, and there isn't, if there's no law against this, then there's no law of how much, how much of this fruit we can experience. I quoted Spurgeon earlier on, and Spurgeon says, Neither God nor man has ever made a law against these things. Neither God nor man has ever made a law against these things. The more there is of them, the better will it be for everybody. Oh, that they prevailed all over the world. Wouldn't the world be a better place? Wouldn't the church of Christ be a better place? Wouldn't our own Christian lives be marked with a difference? Our Christian homes, our Christian families, Christian marriages, wouldn't they be greatly blessed the more of this fruit was evident in our lives? I want you to turn back in your Bible to where we began this series nine or ten weeks ago. Back to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And we began, I'm going to go in reverse order here really, but we began back in May time, I think it was, looking at verse 16 of this chapter. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ before he goes to the cross. He says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So we have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. We have been called and saved. And part of the purpose or reason for that is that we would go forth and bring forth fruit. Spiritual fruit. Fruit that would remain. Then look back at verse 5. So mark that little phrase. We should go and bring forth fruit. Then back up to verse 5. Christ says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. There's the whole theme of union with Christ. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him. There's, that's union. That's union language. Our union with Christ. He dwells in us. We dwell in him. And because of that, because we are in Christ, the same bringeth forth much fruit. So verse 16 talks about bringing forth fruit. Verse 5 speaks about bringing forth much fruit. Then back up into verse 2. He says, every branch in me, there's union again. Every branch in me beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So verse 16, you have bringing forth fruit. Verse 5, bringing forth much fruit. Verse 2, bringing forth more fruit. So there's an abundance here. 
an increasing multiplication of the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And in order for us to bring forth much fruit, it tells us in verse 2, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that he may bring forth more fruit. That little phrase, taketh away, we note it, means to lift up. He lifts up that branch. And the thought there is surely that it would bring forth fruit. And every branch that does bear fruit, he purgeth it, that it brings forth more fruit. And believer, against this there is no law. Christ is the great husbandman. And by his spirit he cultivates and he nurtures this fruit in our lives. He deals with us. He cares for us. Sometimes he has to cut away that which hinders spiritual fruit bearing. Sometimes he brings us into trial to draw us closer to himself. So we would bring forth more fruit. Sometimes he gives us special seasons of communion with himself. And those are used by him. Sometimes he applies the word in a very significant way to our hearts. As if we're the only ones listening to that particular message. And the Lord deals with us. He has many ways of dealing with his people. Purifying us, cleansing us, purging us, lifting us up. But he does it all to cultivate this abundance of spiritual fruit in our lives. There's no law against how much of this we can experience. No law against such. This is what he's saying in verse 23 in Galatians chapter 5. Against such there is no law. Therefore, believer, since there is no law against this, and it has God's approval, and it is something we are to aspire after, and there is the thought of abundance of all of this, let us therefore pray for the fullness of the Spirit. That our lives, every one of our lives, every child of God in this house, every one of us would show forth an abundance of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. There's not one of us, there's not one of us who could not do with more love, more joy, more peace, more long-suffering, more gentleness, more goodness, more faith, more meekness, more temperance. Not one of us. And so may God grant it to us. It will bring glory to his name. It will enable us to be a great witness to the unsaved. It will be good for us. It will be good for you individually. It will be good for you in your family. It will be good for you in the congregation. It will be good for all of us. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. May God grant us grace to bring forth much fruit, more fruit for his glory. If you're not saved in this meeting, let me say this. These things do not make you a Christian. You can't resolve in your heart, well, I'll be more loving, more peaceful, more whatever, and that'll make me right with God. No, that's, that's putting it all the wrong way around. If any man does not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him, he is none of his. You need Christ as your Savior. And then in union with Christ, you can bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So if you're not saved this morning, we call upon you to come to Christ and trust him as your personal Savior, that you would bring forth this fruit in your life too.
Let's bow in prayer. Let's seek the Lord's face. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We bless Thee for these studies in these two verses these past weeks. Lord, I pray that these things will be more evident in my life, in the lives of all of Thy people gathered here and who have heard these messages and read these verses themselves at home. Lord, we pray for much more fruit in our Christian lives, fruit that will bring glory to thy great name. So, Father, answer prayer. and Remember those who are not saved amongst us. Save them by thy grace. Grant us thy richest blessing. Remember our service tonight. Lord, remember the services that are planned for this incoming week and the mission that's planned in a few weeks' time. We pray that even during those weeks of special effort, we would know the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. So be with us now. Part us in thy fear with thy favor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.